Oh, good morning, Mercy Church. Love being here with you. You guys always bring a smile to my face. Every time I walk in here, it's impossible not to smile. Um, are you ready for something big? I hope so. Uh, we're going through a sermon series called Hey Google. Let's see if I can turn this on first. Yeah. And um, today's topic is very big. Uh, <laughs> Eugene, my buddy Eugene, he loves to tackle big topics. He does not hesitate to ask for big things. I love that about his heart. Um, this, it, it sort of reminds me of last year, last summer. He came to me and said, Jason, would you mind doing uh, one of our sessions for our Mercy Retreat? I'm like, oh, okay, wow, yeah, I'd, I'd do that. Um, well, you got some verses for me to talk about or maybe like a passage? He's like, well, we'd like you to cover, I don't know, the gospel. Right? <laughs> like, oh, is that all? Okay. Um, today's topic is really no less grand than that. Um, in fact, ultimately, the whole story of Scripture surrounds this subject. And I'm just going to be honest with you right now. I will not be able to do it justice in the short time that we have. Nowhere close okay? Um, just because I don't say something up here, don't take that to mean that the truth is not there in His Word. I encourage you, please, meditate on Scripture. Spend time alone with Him. He'll have the answers for you, okay? But all I'm really going to be able to do today is more or less give you a 10,000-foot view, all right? My hope today is that I can somewhat paint a roadmap for you that will point you straight to Jesus. My hope is that that's what we'll do today. That's my hope to do every day that you have me up here, okay? So I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit cheesy. When Eugene approached me about this topic, the very first thing that popped into my mind was a song. And uh, it was a song that was actually out right about the time I first became a believer, a little over 10 years ago. And uh, it's by Matthew West. Uh, I loved it then. Let's, um, let's take a look at it now. I think the lyrics should be our prayer for what we examine today. See if you recognize it. It goes, show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how to reach the unreachable. Help me now to do the impossible. Forgiveness. Now, let me tell you a story. There was a woman who lived a little over 100 years ago, grew up in the Netherlands. She was from a big family, Dutch family that was devout Christians. There were about 10 people in her family. I'm wondering if any of you have ever heard the name Corey Ten Boom. Here's Corey. They were devout Christians. When World War II started and the Nazis rolled into the Netherlands and started hunting down Jews to exterminate them, Corey's family actually sheltered some of the Jews, right? Rescued them, kept them from being uh, arrested and taken captive. 
Um, in fact, it's estimated that roughly 800 Jews were saved because of Corey's family. They rebuilt part of their house with secret passageways and little compartments where entire families could actually spend time. Um, it was extraordinary. Sadly enough, sooner or later, they were turned into the authorities. And Corey's whole family was taken into prison and ended up in concentration camps. This is one of those. This is Corey's concentration camp. It was called Ravensbrück. It was nicknamed Hitler's Hell for Women. Awful place. Doesn't look very happy, right? Her father died. Her sisters died. Right? She lost four family members in prison. Awful existence. And you could imagine what this would be like as it would turn out, by the providence of God, there was a clerical error in Corey's paperwork. So after some time at the concentration camp, after losing her sisters, multiple family members, she was actually released from Ravensbrook. She survived. This was 12 days after she watched her sister die in a very bad way. Uh, so you can imagine what that would do to you. And she found out just a week after she was released from Ravensbrook, her entire age group of women were sent to the gas chamber. They all died. Unbelievable. Corey went on to live to be 91 years old. She's seen many things, experienced lots of stuff, harsh realities. What would you suppose was the thing that she said in her words was the hardest thing I ever had to face. It was forgiveness. Because the rest of the story is that Corey, years later, was speaking in a church in Germany, and someone approached her. And right away, she had a visceral reaction. She recognized the man. She was trembling in fear, because he was actually one of two guards that were at Ravensbrook that brutally mistreated her and her sister. What would you do in a situation like that? He said to her, I've become a believer in Christ, and I have to have your forgiveness. He sought her out, found her at that church, asked her for forgiveness. Everything inside Corey was saying, Absolutely not, right? This person killed family. I've lost home. I've lost family. I've lost freedom. I've lost dignity. I've lived a torturous existence. Three words came out of her mouth. I forgive you. It's powerful, isn't it? Corey spoke lots of places. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. It's a popular book about her experience hiding Jews. Um, her observation was that the people she was in prison with, if they found a way to forgive, they went on, when they left prison, to a normal life. But the people who were bitter, who did not find a way to forgive, those people, when they left the prison, it was like they never really left. That's her observation. And I think it shows us that 
forgiveness isn't just a big topic, right? There's big implications at stake, huge. And there's only so much that we can cover here. So the way I want to look at it is I want to break it down into three digestible parts. I think that we can look at what we discuss with each other about forgiveness in three ways. The first is forgiveness with God. The second is forgiveness with others. And the third is forgiveness with myself. But first, some ground rules. We need to know the way others define forgiveness, the way we need to define forgiveness before we move forward, okay? If you Google this right now, even on your phone, say Google, well, I won't do it because it'll turn on some phones. I learned this as I was doing this. Right? What does Google say about forgiveness? To forgive, Google says it's a verb. It says stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake. How interesting. Right? Notice the focus is on feeling. Stop feeling angry or resentful. Um, if we look to another source, this is Greater Good Magazine. It's a publication by UC Berkeley Psychology Department, I believe. Psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment, of vengeance toward a person or a group who's harmed you, regardless of whether they could actually, whether they actually deserve forgiveness. Whoa, that's harsh. Do any of us deserve forgiveness? Very interesting. Guys, it's not about feelings. Do you notice that this is all surrounding feelings? The secular world looks at forgiveness in terms of feelings. I'm here to tell you today that forgiveness is actually about love, right? Forgiveness is truly about restoring a relationship. That's what forgiveness is. It's not a feeling. You are or you are not forgiven. You forgive or you do not forgive. The feelings are what come afterwards. Love is something that is crucial to this, right? It's not feelings. What, what are feelings? Feelings involve others serving me. Feelings involve me serving me. Love involves me serving another from the heart. You see the distinction there? Would you like a biblical definition? That's what I'd hope we'd be after. Let's look at a biblical definition. This is going to be our text for today. And it's like, whoa, whoa, Jason, this doesn't even say forgiveness. This is the definition for forgiveness. It's Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Exceedingly simple, right? This is our entire text. Let's unpack it just a little bit. Like, okay, if possible, is that suggesting that sometimes it's not possible? That's exactly what it's suggesting. Sometimes achieving reconciliation in a relationship is not possible. We hate to hear that, right? We don't want that to be the, the way it is. But why is it sometimes possible? Why is it sometimes not, or sometimes not possible? The second part of the verse here tells us that, right? So far as it depends on you, right? It's suggesting there's two elements involved here. 
there are two sides to a relationship. So far as it depends on me means I can only control my side of the relationship. And what this is, is removing a barrier to relationship, right? If there's a barrier to relationship, if I'm trying to reconcile, I'm really trying to find a way to bring back trust. I can only do that from my side. Sin is against someone in the relationship or both parties, right? But sin breaks trust. Sin damages a relationship. And so what you're doing by so far as it depends on you is you are removing as much from your side of the equation as you can to get trust reestablished. You can't control whether or not the other person does, though. And that's the nature of the beast, unfortunately, right? That's, that's really an f- unfortunate reality of relationships, but that's why it's a relationship. It's trust, right? Keep in mind, too, that love is an expectation for us, right? We are commanded to love as Christians. We're commanded to love our enemies. You are not ever commanded to trust except one person. There's only one person in all the universe and beyond that is ever worth 100% of your trust, and that's God himself. You are commanded to trust God, but he's the only one that you are ever commanded to trust. God won't command you to trust another person. He doesn't force relationships, right? He he won't force a relationship on you. He won't force you to have a relationship with another. God's not in the business of forcing relationships. He is, in fact, the best in the business at healing them. That should give us hope. Let's take a look at the first of our three scenarios, knowing this. And that's forgiveness with God. Now, When I've screwed up, when I've sinned, so far as it depends on me, right? That's our text. What do I need to do to find peace with God? Well, 1 John 1.9 tells us exactly what to do, doesn't it? We know this verse pretty well. There it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we memorize this verse, we know it, back of our hands, but do we really meditate on it? Do we really examine it? Let's unpack it just a little bit. If we confess, right, the first part there, if is conditional. Uh Uh-oh. That means it relies on that, right? It depends on if we confess. It says if we do confess, He's faithful. What's that mean? He is 100% trustworthy. You can count on it. Right? What he says he'll do, he'll do. And just. What's just mean? Just means he's good. Right? He's righteous. He does what he says he's going to do. Oh, and guess what? The things he says he's going to do, they're good. 
What would it be like if we had a God in the universe who was faithful and unjust? That'd be horrible, right? It's the exact opposite. Our God is faithful and our God is good. To forgive us and cleanse us. Those are the words we're looking for, right? That's what we need to know. That's what we need to believe. And what happens is at this point, we start to struggle with something that we throw around in the terminology guilt, right? We struggle with guilt, we feel guilty. First of all, let me just tell you, guilt, guilty, it's not a state of feeling. It's a state of being. It's a legal thing that says you are guilty or you are not guilty, right? It's a legal transaction, legal state of being. It's the number one thing that counselors deal with, actually, is guilt, struggling with guilt. And what that really is, biblically, is the conscience. i tell you right now. It's the conscience, this feeling of guilt. The conscience is something that the secular world would love to get rid of. Remember all of that stuff about feelings? Yeah, well, if I'm dealing with guilt, that's not a fun feeling, is it? That's not a pleasant feeling. But when my conscience is doing that to me, it's powerful. Don't shut it off. You know when you're driving around and all of a sudden the check engine light comes on? We don't like rejoice in the, ch- in the check engine light, right? We're like, oh, man, check engine light? Gotta be kidding me. Maybe I'll call up Peter and he'll come by with his little diagnostic thing and shut that light off, right? I don't want that light. I'm not saying that happened. It did happen, right? If I shut that check engine light, have I solved the problem? I've almost made the problem worse, right? The problem's still there. The check engine light's there to tell us there's something going on inside that's problematic. It's a powerful advantage. You, you guys go bowling. Bowling's fun, right? Sending the ball down the lane, and especially when your brand new bowler goes all over the place, off into the gutter. You look a couple of lanes down, and what do you see? You see someone with those little guardrails up, and uh, they're sending their ball down, and it bonk, 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 like actually, he, they get a strike, and they're like, what? The first thing you say is, that's an unfair advantage. Come on. Let me assure you guys, your conscience is an unfair advantage. The devil hates your conscience. It is the worst possible thing for him. It's something that God designed in us to help us guard from living outside of his obedience. That's what the conscience is designed to do, right? The conscience is there to keep us in line. And the devil hates that. Why should there be some advantage for us to tell us I'm doing wrong? Right, what's even better for the Christian is that you also have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps to train your conscience. It's as though you have someone moving those rails closer and closer and closer in the bowling lane. That's what a conscience does. Don't do away with it, don't shut it off. Right? When your conscience is well-trained by the Holy Spirit, that's what we call sanctification. R.C. Sproul tells a wonderful story 
it's been many years ago now since I've heard it, so you'll have to forgive me if I don't have spot on detail, but the nuts and bolts of it are this, that he had a student come to him who had engaged in sexual sin. And unfortunately, this student had sought advice from the chaplain of the school who gave her horrible uh, theological counsel. Basically, he said, oh, your conscience is just a little too sensitive. Uh, so these bad feelings that you're feeling, uh, realize that the culture at large, that's just kind of how we live today. What you did is perfectly natural. Uh, don't worry about it. And those feelings should go away. Well, the feelings didn't go away. So she goes and sees R.C. Sproul. She says, Dr. Sproul, here's what I've done. Here's what I was told. But I just still feel so guilty. And he said, good. He's like, good? What are you talking about? He's like, good. You feel guilty because you are guilty. See, that stuff that you did, that might not be a big deal in the culture at large, but it's a transgression against God. And that's why he gave you a conscience. So go home, get on your knees, repent of this sin, and he will forgive you. So she goes to do that, and a couple days later comes back, and he could see that she's still unsettled about things. I'm like, okay, what's going on? She's like, Dr. Sproul, I did exactly what you said, and I, I still feel guilty. And he's like, okay, well, go home, get on your knees, repent of your sin, and he will forgive you. And she's like, what? Did you not just hear me? I already did that. And he's like, well, I mean, forgive me for saying it, but doesn't God's word say if we confess our sins, right, that he's faithful and just to forgive us? And she's like, well, of course, I, I know that. He said, okay, this time, repent for what you didn't believe last time. This time repent for not believing him the first time. That's powerful, isn't it? Right? That's training the conscience. And it's good to have a check engine light, right? It's good to do something about that check engine light. It's good to have remorse over sin. It is not good to dwell on sin that has already been forgiven. So are you struggling with guilt? Do you believe him? Do you trust him? If you do, let's take a look at what he says. Have peace with God. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let's stop right there justified, past tense. You have been justified by faith. What's justified mean? Justified literally means declared not guilty. By faith. Right? That's the whole thing in the Bible. Right? Faith is everywhere. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? The, the righteous man shall live by faith Right? It's always faith because it's always relationship with God. 
That's what you will continually see in Scripture. And look what it says. We have peace with God. We have it. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That relationship has to have that element. Why? Because like we talked about with Jonah, when God forgives you, that's mercy. Right? Mercy is extending a privilege to someone. It's basically relinquishing a right to justice that I have. God has a right to justice for the sins that we commit, doesn't he? But he shows us mercy. And like we talked about in Jonah, mercy still comes at a cost. There's a penalty paid for justice. When mercy is shown, it's not like that cost just evaporates. It goes somewhere. Where did it go? Jesus. That's why we have peace with God. And that's the gospel. Let's take a look at the second of our scenarios. Forgiveness with others. Now, forgiveness with others is not just generically, you know, a situation. We need to break it down to what it really is. There will be forgiveness for those seeking it from me, and there will be forgiveness I need to extend to others, right? Those who sin against me and those whom I sin against. Let's start with those who sin against me. Mark 11:25 helps us see this. And whenever you stand praying, this is Jesus saying this to us, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He didn't place any conditions on that. He says anyone for anything. He just says, forgive. That means, so far as it depends on you, you remove your barrier, right? That's what Jesus did. Remember when he's hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, right? From his end, removed the barrier. Colossians helps us see it as well. Paul says in Colossians, that we read earlier, <laughs> as wonderful, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We're seeing sort of a common theme here. Those are all extensions of love. Those are all me serving another, being moldable with another, being approachable with another. And if anyone or bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You also must forgive. That's not giving us a lot of wiggle room. Well, what about this guy? He did this. Right? Well, what about this situation? No, no. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. It's not a question. There's, uh, there's nothing left to decide there. We talked about trust, right? Reestablishing trust. 
Let's take a look at this scenario. This is Jesus again. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Right? That means seek to correct him. That's what will help bring back trust. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Not optional. Now, what's the saying? Saying love is not optional. Mercy that you show someone as a Christian, it's not optional. Trust is not exactly the same thing, right? Notice that here he's saying, if he sins against you, rebuke him. Right? You're trying to build trust back because trust is a measured thing, right? There's degrees of trust. If I have this much trust with you and we break that trust either by me or by you, I have to kind of start from scratch with you again, don't I? I never start from scratch with you again when it comes to love. Never. There's no degree of love. Sacrificial love is supposed to be unmeasured. Trust is measured. Trust is conditional and love is unconditional. You sort of see the difference there? What about those who've sinned against us? This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, right? He has something against me because I've sinned against him. That's what that's saying. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So much to cover here. We don't have the time to do it. Two things. Is Jesus saying there are consequences when we don't go seek forgiveness from our brother that we've wronged? Absolutely, right? That's what he's saying. Number two, does Jesus place priority on us reconciling with others? Absolutely, right? That's what's going on here. He's saying relationship needs to be tantamount of the priorities in your life. That needs to be something that you are fixated on making right. Our relationships with one another are crucial. Now we'll get into a little bit of controversy. It's with this right here. This is something I hear all the time. You probably hear it too. It's very common language in today's culture, even inside the church. Forgiving myself, right? What I hear is like, I, I just can't forgive myself. But I made a mistake and, and I, I just can't forgive myself. There are no commands in scripture on this, so realize that this is coming from me. If I can encourage you as a brother in Christ 
I would ask that you eradicate language like this from your vocabulary. You've heard me right. I'm saying this idea, at its very core, is a secular idea. It is not from a biblical worldview. It's not biblical. The Bible tells us that we need to humble ourselves. Right? The Bible says we should submit ourselves. The Bible says that we need to keep ourselves from idols, keep ourselves in the love of the Lord. The Bible clearly shows that we know abundantly how to love ourselves. One thing the Bible never says is that I can or even should forgive myself. And I don't know, I think people will take that in a very negative way if you've been told all along that that's actually the truth, but the reality is you are bankrupt to do anything about forgiving yourself. Essentially, it's the same thing as saying that you can forgive your own debt. What would happen right now if, uh, if I called up my lender and was like, hey, um, so this mortgage thing, uh, gosh, it's su such a burden on me, you know, to pay that every single month. What I'd like to do is I just, I'm just gonna cancel my debt. And they're like, oh, great, so you're, you're gonna pay off the house? And I'm like, no, 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 I can't, I can't do that. Um, no, I just, I'd just really like to cancel my debt with you. And they're like, uh, so we don't understand. You're, gonna, you're like gonna give us the keys back? Like you wanna turn the house back over to us? I'm like, no, no, I wanna keep the house. I just want to be free from the debt. I'm gonna go ahead and cancel my own debt. It's preposterous, right? It's a ridiculous idea. And even though we feel at the core of our being sometimes that there's something about being able to forgive ourselves, it, it is not true, right? You cannot forgive yourself. You wanna know why? Because you don't have authority over you. You don't have authority over you because you don't own you. Now I'm really stepping on some toes, I'm sure. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's my life, Jason. I'm the one that makes decisions. I'm like, okay. But do you own you? I mean, I'm sorry. Were you the one who created you? Were you the one who redeemed you? No, recognize very quickly, you don't have authority over you. And the fact of the matter is you belong to someone else, and only he can forgive you. Right? Because you belong to him. When we say, I need to forgive myself, we're speaking in falsehood. I might want to forgive myself, but when I sin against myself, in a sense, I'm not sinning against me, I'm sinning against his property. I'm sinning against him. Right? He's the one who has the authority to forgive sin, and he's the only one. Let's take a look. There we go. Mark chapter two, you know the scene. Everyone's crowding around Jesus in Capernaum and they bring a paralytic to him. They have to lower him down through the roof because no one can get to Jesus, he says. And, <clears throat> and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Are the scribes right in saying that? 
They are definitely right in saying that, right? You are not going to catch the scribe incorrectly giving the law. They might be hypocrites. They might not live it, right? But they are correct. No one forgives sin but God alone. Look what happens. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, went home before them all, and they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Right? Jesus said, I have the authority you acknowledge that God alone can forgive sins. I have that authority. I'm God. And I do forgive sins. We, we struggle with this idea of forgiving ourselves when we misappropriate who's actually in charge. Plain and simple. Okay? Uh, we look at David's example just quickly. David screwed up big time, Right? Adultery with Uriah's wife killed Uriah. He's approached by Nathan the prophet who exposes his sin. And David was king, right? So that meant lots of other people were going to experience the consequences for the sin that he commits. He learns his child is going to die because of what he did. What does David say? He's like, oh no, my child, I, I just can't forgive myself. No, David appropriately says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to the day, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Right? That's the appropriate stance to take. What about towards the end of 2 Samuel? This is the last chapter of 2 Samuel. Right? David calls for a census, which is a huge breach of faith with the Lord. Right? It's basically saying, I depend on me, not on you, God. People were disgusted that he did this. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. That sounds a lot like the conscience to me, right? And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O oh Lord, I just can't forgive myself. No, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. He knows only God can do it. Let's look at one last thing here in this section. <laughs> this is a parable of the unforgiving servant. Right? We know it very well. The big picture of the parable is when we've been shown mercy, we need to extend mercy. What I want to do is look at a finer point here to make a point about this aspect of forgiveness and see if you catch it. Jesus says, therefore... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Right? The king wants to remove the barrier. Right? That's what that is. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You know what 10,000 talents is? What's gold going for today? Right? 1,800 bucks a, an ounce? A talent is 75 pounds. Right? 1,800 an ounce times 16 ounces in one pound, 
times 75, 75 pounds, times 10,000 is $21.6 billion. That's what that is in today's money. And look what this servant says. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and children, <clears throat> and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Ridiculous, right? That's nonsense. We'd say that's nonsense. That's the point of this, is it's nonsense. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, here's what I want you to consider. When this happened, what do you think the king's response would be if the servant said, oh, thank you for taking off the $21.6 billion. It's just I, I can't really forgive myself. I can't really forgive the debt that I have with myself. I need to somehow pay a debt to myself. The king not be totally outraged at that? I think we know he would be, right? And that's, that's part of what I'd like to propose. Right? That us not showing mercy to the one who needs it is equally as bad as us not rejoicing in mercy to the one who gives it. Very, very important. Why is it so hard? Because it's a deception, guys. This is a deception. If you believe in a lie, you're a slave, right? You're a slave to what's not true. But Jesus, I want to say, Jesus said somewhere, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? What, what's this all about? If you remain in my word, we say that his word is true. So you're following me, that's what a disciple is. And remain in my word, then you do know the truth. You have the truth. And that sets you free. You see that belief in a lie, it can prevent you from having peace. God has removed the barrier of peace in Christ, right? Through Christ. Now, so much as it depends on you to live peaceably with all, and that could include yourself, what depends on you is actually believing in the truth. The truth is what sets you free. You want to believe in a lie? You will be a slave. That's the gospel. Lie steals peace from you. Don't believe in a lie. If you're remaining in his word, you believe that the truth, the truth is what sets you free, okay? To sum things up, I'm not here to tell you how to forgive. This isn't a to-do list for achieving Rome, Romans 12, 18, right? That's not what I do. But I think if we're honest, we know sort of where the trouble starts, don't we? Here's where the trouble starts. It starts when I'm praying or saying or living this sentence right here. Lord, I know your word says this, but 
And I can assure you, anything that you put in that slot is the first step on the road to destruction. Lord, I know your word says this, but, right? Lord, I know that your word's true, but, wow, guys, this is a disaster. You've got to stay away from this. We have to stay away from this. Where's the hope? The hope is I can take this exact same sentence, change one little aspect, and we have the gospel. Lord, I know your word says this, and I trust you. That's the gospel, guys. If you know the truth sets you free, believe in his truth. Several weeks ago at the, at the Good Friday service, it's a wonderful service, absolute candy for a Jesus-loving soul. Definitely say that you should go home and watch what Eugene gave. And one of, the, one of the gems that he gave us was that we need to live like Christians who've been forgiven much. There's no such thing as a Christian that wasn't forgiven much. Everybody's been forgiven much. There's only Christians who know so and Christians who forget so. That's very profound. Look, guys, I need to be reminded I've been forgiven much, right? When I feel like there's some barrier between God, that he's looking at me a different way, I need to be reminded I've been forgiven much when I don't feel like forgiving someone else. I need to be, for, I need to be reminded I've been forgiven much when I feel like I might be able to forgive myself. Can I tell you that just, just days after that Good Friday service, I was reminded, I really was. I, um, it was powerful. I went to the grocery store. I was in a huge rush, and as is a habit of mine, unfortunately, I didn't grab a cart on the way in. I go straight to the aisles, right, and start grabbing things, and I end up having a big pile of stuff in my hands as I make my way to the self-checkout register. Terrible habit. This time, one of the items that I had picked up was a little basket of grape tomatoes. Love them, right? It's about this big. And I've got that on top, of course, trying to set things down next to the register, and you can see it happening. The basket fell off that pile of stuff that I had in my arms. The basket broke, and little grape tomatoes rolled throughout the entire self-checkout section. It was a nightmare. I, there must have been a million tomatoes in that basket. I don't know. I get down on my hands and knees immediately. I'm like scrounging, just trying to pick up tomatoes. It's just awful. The floor was completely filthy, right? I'm so thankful I wasn't wearing good clothes. And so I'm like trying to get them all. Just, of course, huge embarrassment. I'm preventing people from coming into that section because they all rolled out. You'd wish somebody could help you, but they've all got their arms full of groceries and stuff too. So they're just like trying to look out and I don't want to step on a tomato. I finally get most of these tomatoes back into the basket. I'm hurrying as quickly as I can. And as I'm standing, there's a guy who works at the grocery store, he's in the vest, and I can tell what he's trying to do is take that basket 
of filthy tomatoes out of my hand. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, no, no, it's, it's okay. I, I'm sorry, this is totally my fault, right? I'll pay for the tomatoes, don't even worry about it. He's got a basket of brand new, clean tomatoes. I don't know how he did it. He had to have sprinted over to the produce section, sprinted back with exactly what I needed. And I'm trying to tell him, no, 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 look, this is, this is my fault, man. I messed up here. I'm paying for these tomatoes, right? He took the basket of tomatoes from me. He gave me the clean tomatoes and just said one thing. He said, that's why I'm here. So powerful, guys. So very powerful. I walked back out into the car. I thought first, I'm like, oh God, is this like an angel or something? Where did this guy, he just poofed in, you know, in and out of my life like that. Never seen him before. And I'm like, no, that's it's the reminder, right? I've been forgiven much. My life was a filth. God gave me a new one. That's why Jesus is here. He says in Luke chapter 7 that he who's been forgiven little loves little. Lord, I testify to you today, I've been forgiven much. Thank you for that reminder. God, Help us to be mindful of your forgiveness. Help us to remember. Lord, I remember. Help us to see what you've shown us today so that we would be those who forgive much, we would be those who love much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.